got guys you know getting 100 to 150 boards a, a season all of which are just completely glass to the lightest possible standard we're talking like i mentioned in one of the comments i wrote back uh picking up one of jack freestone's boards um that a mate of mine had and prep look on wow you know this thing's light and pressing it with my fingers and, and actually cracking the glass with uh, my thumb Welcome to The Drop. My name is Danny Johnson and this week we have a slightly different episode for you. No interview, no Mike and Stace from the cusp, just an extended coverage of all the news from this week in surfing with Stabs editor Brendan Buckley, like we always do. We do have a couple of guest appearances though. Jed Smith, who we all know from his Ain't That Swell podcast and his many features on Stab Premium. We're also briefly joined by the newest member of Stab's team of writers, Ethan Davis. Ethan, he's only 23 years old, but he's definitely carrying around a, a level of knowledge and cerebral horsepower far beyond his years. He, he actually recently completed a degree in neuroscience and was working in a clinic that specialised in neuro rehabilitation and the treatment of brain disorders. And now we've stolen him from that world to, to work at STAB. Can't help but I think we might have done the world a bit of a disservice there. What's been happening over there? Is the comp on? Are you right in the thick of the, of the championship series right now? Yeah, so I'm in the heart of the CSQS beast. The waves have been, you know, they, they did that thing where the QS came in town and just got really bad. I actually broke a streak. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd like to surf every day. And I was going for, I don't even know when, but it would have been like probably two months. And it was so flat that I broke that. Uh, which was very sad, and I do blame that on the Challenger series. <laughs> but we have some swell back now, and so I might actually try to keep track of this one because I'm going to just be at it every day. Hey, what's your longest streak? I don't count. Uh-huh. I never count. I just I just go. Isn't there some guy who just surfed forever? I'm going to look it up right now. Yeah, there's that janitor in Northern California. Everyday Dale. That's the best name. Dale. Yeah, I knew he had a good name for it. <laughs> That's perfect. Every single day since September 3rd, 1975, Dale Webster has surfed in a minimum of three waves every single day. 14,641 days, no matter the conditions or circumstances. But yesterday, on October 5th, 2015, for the first time in four decades, the 66-year-old didn't go surfing. Well, I like that he, it wasn't just one wave too that he... He had to catch at least three. That's good. Oh, I go off his rule. Three waves counts as a session. Sometimes, like, I'll just, if you have such a small window, you just go out there, three waves, that's it, that counts. Uh, sometimes that can be really hard. Like, if it's, like, massive and windy here, I'll struggle to get that third wave. But I gotta. It's Dale's rule. It's the golden rule. WSL wildcard fiasco has arrived. So last week, the Cusp guys went into the WSL's wildcard announcement. And they went to the change that was made, which was instead of double qualifiers, you know, in the past, if somebody qualified through the, the CT and the CS, QS, those spots would just go right back into the rankings. So if you were one spot behind, then it would just go to you. Now, if there's double qualifiers, those spots just go to the WSL. And what I found out this week is that a petition was formed 
No way. Over 100 people have signed for the WSL to change that rule. Over 100 people, like just anyone? Or is this, is this fans? Is this surfers? Who, who's, who's this petition amongst? So you have to enter your name and your email to do it. And they want to keep it just surfers because they don't want it just, you know, they, they want it to be a message from the surfers to the WSL. Yeah. And so I think that's why the emails are on there too. So they could, you know, reference that on the records. Because uh, right now I'm hearing that Gabriel Medina has signed. I've heard that Tatiana Weston Webb has signed. Geron Defey. Uh, I've heard a bunch of people have signed it and obviously, you know, a hundred people on the QS. And do we, do you know what this petition says exactly? Yeah, I do. It's, uh, it's written on, it's like a Portuguese or Brazilian hosting site. So uh, I don't know who designed it, but you can assume they weren't from San Clemente. And it goes over that new rule. One of the things it points out is that in 2019, Morgan Sibilic finished 11th on the QS. He would not have made the what became the 2021 CT without this rule. As the last qualifier and the least known surfer in the field, Morgan Sibilic entered the 2021 CT season with little to lose and plenty to gain. It's Jessen, Australia's gonna have a new rookie on the 2020 Championship Tour, Morgan Sibilic. Welcome to the tour, how are you feeling? Kind of freaking out right now, so I'm stoked. Who is Morgan Siblick? I think everyone's still trying to work that out. I mean, he was like 20 at the time. He hadn't proven himself in the QS. They could have easily written him off as just like a lucky year and given that spot to somebody else. And so they actually wrote that on the petition and they basically say, hey, we want to change this rule. And they also mentioned prize money. Basically the prize money on the series has dipped down a bit. Uh, last time it ran, it was 30K to win a prime event at that time. Now it's 20K. And then that kind of trickles down all the way through. And so there's a little bit less money and it's, yeah, it's going to be a lot of money to chase it. Obviously these people don't have crazy, most of them don't have crazy sponsorship deals. A lot of them are going like into debt to chase the series. So it's a, it's an inter interesting rule that the, that it doesn't go to the next highest quality, uh, next highest surfer that didn't qualify because in a way, it makes the surfers that double qualify, the ones that follow the championship series and the QS events, seem like big meanies for stealing spots unnecessar unnecessarily from, um, you know, surfers that are trying to qualify. And they don't want to discourage or make surfers feel bad that are actually trying to surf both tours, do they? That's an interesting point. I think, you know, that came up at the ISA World Games which was controversial this year when they got everybody together in El Salvador and the CT surfers had already qualified. You know, they had people like Gabriel, all those people had to be there. Their attendance was mandatory. And a few people just surfed one heat and bailed. And they said, because they don't want to steal somebody, like they don't want to go hard in a heat and mess somebody else's chances up to uh, potentially qualify. And so I guess they'd have to, apply that same logic to the to the cs now right like it's the same exact idea would you sign it if if you were given the opportunity to i honestly think the league wouldn't go too rogue with it like i think it's unfortunate timing that the ultimate server just aired uh no offense to dana white friend of the program but i think it kind of has a case it can be referenced as a case of like, do we really want to put the WSL or the cards in the WSL's hands? Because, you know, here's a reality TV show that they did last time. They had wild cards. I don't think they do anything like that again, but it's just unfortunate timing for them. Uh, 
it's hard because on one hand, like the next the next Medina coming up is not going to have trouble getting into the top 10 on the CS, right? Like that's just a matter of fact. Next superstar is just going to dance through that series anyway. So it's like, okay, well, if you want to make the big leagues, just like finish top 10, just be that good. But at the mm. same time, you have these like two really established systems that everybody's agreed on. And a lot of people are going, like I said, into debt to chase the one. I think they should just keep it the way it was, give it to people. Morgan Sibillic proved that like these crazy things can happen. So who knows what they'll do? One interesting thing there too is that we actually did a story on Stab Premium over the weekend about the World Pro Surfers, which is pretty much a union that represents the surfers on the WSL. Uh, one of the focuses there was that they have a pension fund, actually, and that pro surfers own 10% of the WSL, which is something that I had no idea about. Yeah, this is an incredible story. It's a full-on scoop. I don't think no one I know knew any of the things that were detailed in that story and, and how the WSL looks after surfers and, and how they plan to look after surfers way into the future. And, I mean, we all know that they, they, they're really good to the surface and, and the nothing shows that more than the the equal prize money to women and and the female surfers on tour love the WSL. They're all super busy and they have a lot of things going on, but I know that they will bend over backwards to work with the WSL because they appreciate that gesture so much and they appreciate the dollar reduce that they're, they're now earning. So, yeah, but th then this is looking after surfers like way into the future, the, the way this works. It's pretty, pretty uh, goddamn impressive. Okay, so there's three things you need to know about the WPS. First is what it stands for, World Professional Surfers. And they're the official body that represent the rights and interests of surfers whenever there's a policy change or a format change like the mid-year cutoffs or the playoffs. The WPS works really closely with the CT surfers to uh, discuss those changes, try and come to a consensus and then put forth a proposal back to the, the WSL. The second thing you need to know is that CT surfers post-2014 have a pension fund. So five years after you fall offshore, you are able to cash out on the payments, the sum of the payments based on longevity on shore. And Mitch Cruz and Glenn Hall are in the process of doing that right now. The third and final thing that you need to know is that CT surfers own 10% of the tour's equity. So if the tour is ever sold, CT surfers post 2014 are entitled to 10% of the sales price. Yeah, for me, one of the most fascinating things was the story of the, like how the, the World Pro Servers got started was just an English philanthropist showing up to the beach at an event similar to this, just a, a thing in Lacanau, France, and seeing people like sleeping on the beach in their board bags, and he ended up just pumping like two million into the ASP. And I was like, fuck, I just want to be a wealthy English philanthropist one day. <laughs> Like, imagine if you could just go to a sporting event randomly and just be like, you know what? Here's two million. Like, what a yeah. life. And what a, what a good way to spend your money. You know, you make a bunch of money, just walk around a sporting event, obscure things, and just give everybody money. What a great way to live. Yeah. Um, Wouldn't it feel good? Wouldn't you sleep well at night just knowing that you're... You're changing lives like that. He probably could have swept well night even in a board bag on the beach along them with that kind of peace of mind, you know? It's like, it's great to see. But one interesting thing with that is that it, so the WPS represents the CT surfers. Even any change that needs to be made, what's interesting is that this change was approved by the surfers union, which is run through the WPS just earlier this year. 
they don't really have that representation on the CS level. I mean, that would just be impossible to organize. CT servers, you know you have locked in for a certain amount of time. CS, anybody can kind of come and go and rise and fall off as they please. You can't really, like, they'd be way more complicated. But I have heard that they have nominated uh, Christian from the WPS, I've heard, is helping with this and helping to get surfers represented in each region. So they'll have a meeting uh, with Travis Logie, I heard, and discuss it and see if there's anything they can do or all get on the same page. So it sounds like it's it's really interesting, just the fact that a group of 100 pro surfers is commissioning the WSL, or petitioning, sorry, on something. It's just, I've never really heard of anything like that. So it's a great story. It's on Stab Premium by the time this drops. So check it out. And if you have, if you're a wealthy English philanthropist, which maybe our surf scene guy is, I'm not sure, uh, you know, come give people some money. Yeah. Maybe even a couple of podcast guys. Yeah, you know, maybe, maybe you just listen to a pod and you go, hey, this guy, two mil. Tom Mori, one of surfing's early geniuses and inventor of the boogie board, is dead at the age of 86. Danny, you were a bug, if I, if I remember this correctly, right? Yeah, my early days were on an esky lid, as they're commonly known in Australia. Mm. Yeah, lids. Yeah, but you know what? I, I knew nothing about Tom Moray. I, I, knew, I knew that name. I knew the Moray bodyboard brand and I knew that he invented the bodyboard. And it wasn't until he died that I was like, holy shit, this guy was, he was a proper Einstein of surfing. And that's how he described himself as well. 10 years ago, the Moray boogie board made its debut on the West Coast. And what everyone thought would be just another fad turned out to be as American as the Beach Boys. And the man who invented it, a surfer's legend. The concept is to just make something soft and easy that gives the feel of the wave. He was born in Detroit, raised in Laguna Beach, studied math at uh, USC, which is a great school. Uh, I, I studied math there too. Um. <laughs> Did you really? No. Huh. Then he started, he pretty much founded Tesla. Uh, I read that he worked at Douglas Aircraft, which I'm pretty sure if you're working at an aircraft company in the 50s, you're pretty much a spaceman. So he was essentially mm -hmm. an astronaut. But I guess some of his experience there helped him to come up with the bug. I think he was working, like designing materials there. And so he just took a part of an airplane and said, let's go boogie board on this. And... Did you see that clip I sent you about with, with Action Bronson talking to Mike Tyson about booging? <laughs> yeah. I found, I think there's a parallel in this. I think he talks about flying and something about Tom Morey working at an aircraft company and working with aircraft material. Things that are literally made to fly and then putting it in the ocean. I mean, Action Bronson's onto something, I think. And the well, bodyboard, yeah, and the yeah. bodyboard. What's that what? like, man? It's, for now, it's like deep flying. Go? It's like flying. It's like fucking Superman. It's like you're just flying through the air, but you're on water and it's just, you're seeing the, the wave curl right in front of your face and somehow you're in, you're in it. Now, what tell me what happens when that, it's like a vortex. You're in it's the exactly air and a that, vortex. How does like, that work? It's like when you hit the DMT and you blast off, it's that sound of silence and then that's just, it's like euphoria. I was also thinking, it's like, okay, like 86, that's a good run. But, and the guy was clearly brilliant. But if you could, 
like in his last days, if he could have like a, a kid or a grandkid try to describe to him Action Bronson explaining to Mike Tyson why he loves this thing that he invented so much. I just wonder what that would, how would that compute in this brilliant 86 year old brain? Um, yeah. You know what the other thing about that is he fully died at the right time. If he would have died a couple of decades ago when surfers and bodyboarders were just hating each other, like it was just outrageous the level of hate between surfers and bodyboarders. Uh, I don't think he would have been celebrated across every surf website and, and the, the amount of obituary. How do you say that word? Obituary. Obituaries. Obituaries that he's had and he's just been celebrated so much. I think his name would have been still a little bit mud because bodyboarding's come come a long way in, and surfers love bodyboarding now, especially in Australia. I don't know what it's like globally, but a lot of the pro surfers now will ride bodyboards and are best friends with the bodyboarders and they, they go and hunt bodyboard. Uh, what we what used to be like bodyboard only waves, and I was just imagining if the inventor of the rollerblade died, I, I can't imagine Thrasher writing articles about about that guy. That's, and that, that's a really good point. I didn't think about that, but that that is a really good point. Yeah, he uh, he he definitely checked out at the right time. Bodyboarding is is on right now. Um, he did have some interesting quotes about us getting obsessed with terms just like why are we calling it he invented this thing but he's like why are you calling it boogie boarding versus surfing like we're all doing the same thing i think it's easy to assume and this is what i i assume that he was a bodyboarder himself mm. and that was his entry into the surf world but he wasn't i went and read his encyclopedia of surfing entry matt walshaw's website which i recommend anyone subscribing to that that cares a little bit about surfing and I was blown away at this guy's like legacy as a surfer. And I said, I made a joke about him being celebrated and even though he invented the bodyboard, which a lot of surfers used to hate and maybe some still do, but man, he invented so many things. Can I read a couple of these things out to you? Please do. He, so he was a shaper, had his own models and, and was pretty celebrated, I think. And then moved on to inventing this thing he called a trisect and early moray poke creation, a travel-ready three-piece board that came with its own suitcase. So this is essentially a surfboard that you could dismantle and then put in a su- suitcase travel with without all the, all the troubles of baggage fees and then reassemble on the other side. Apparently it didn't work very well, but then, and people have tried that since. I think like 30 years later, people started doing that again, but even though it didn't necessarily work, that's pretty genius. And the next one he invented was Moray helped develop Slip Check in 1965, a surfboard traction aerosol spray-on used as an alternative to surfboard wax. So that was Slip Check. It's just like spray-on wax, essentially. That, that, one, that one resonates with me. I have this weird thing where no matter what, I have to rub at least a little bit of wax on my board every time before I hit the water. Like if I don't even have... Oh, yeah. I, I freak out. It's, it gets in my head if I don't. So yeah, if somebody could invent a spray thing... Uh, That'd be very nice of you. Yeah, I'm the same. I'm superstitious about just a little top off of wax before. I uh, freak out. Every you get in your head if you don't, right? It's it's no good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that you know what's funny when we were one of the challenges on Stab Highway, which is the series we're running at the moment, is to ride a board completely tractionless, a brand new board that's never been waxed up or gripped. And Ozzy writes one of the judges and when we're doing the interview with Ozzy for the show, Ozzy was like, I didn't really think that would be hard because I never use wax. I Sometimes I like don't use wax for, I feel like I don't wax my board for like six months at a time and I was so blown away. I was like, what? 
That is incredible. I don't know how he does it because I, I freak out. It's, it's like, you know, that fresh feeling you get when you brush your teeth afterwards and you feel weird if you don't do it? Oh, yeah, that's a bad feeling if you don't. Yeah, it's, it's the same thing with waxing a board. Anyway, two years later, he introduced WAVE, W-A-V-E, SET, the first commercially successful removable fin system. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh. Did you know that? So fin, fin systems have been around forever, it would seem like, but he had the first commercially successful one. And then his next one is, in 1965, he started a contest, the Tom Moray Invitational Surfing's First Prize Money Contest. Can you guess how much money he gave away in this contest, the first surfing's first prize money contest? Was he friends with any English philanthropists? <laughs> Doesn't seem like it, no. Uh, 350 No, $1,500, which is pretty, I mean... Back in 1965, that would be worth at least. I think it's, yeah, I think it's good money. Gallon of milk used to cost me a nickel, you know? <laughs> Back then, that was a lot of cash. A um, lot of milk. And so, uh, yeah, that was a lot of milk. The, the next thing that's interesting about this contest was it was a nose riding only contest. And in, instead of it being judged on something subjective, he, he brought objectivity to surf contests. And there was like this stopwatch system. So you got your stopwatch started when you got when you hung ten on the nose, and then it stopped when you weren't. So at the end of the end of the heat, it was the person who had hung ten the most throughout the contest. I like that. I like that. I would never want to see that applied to a wave pool, but I like that in the ocean. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you're a big longboard fan. The ironic Huge. thing about the ironic thing about that is the two people that were in the final, Mickey Munez and Mike Henson, you know, here's this, here's this contest that's supposedly objective and, and it, it can't fail because they've got this system. One of the timers uh, made an error and they actually messed up and so the wrong guy won. <laughs> and then the, the winner, the winner um, admitted it. Henson was meant to win but Mickey Munez won and he admitted it years later. It, it took him years. Yeah, I think he was just, you know... Just hanging on that in that glory, the glory of the win. He had that $1,500. He'd probably spent the money by this point and then decided, yeah, may as well come clean. I always wondered why when they gave the world title to Kelly Slater at Heat Early in San Francisco, what was that, like 2011, thereabouts? Mm -hmm. He was going to win anyway. Like, why do they even own up to making that mistake? Did somebody call him out or something? Well, the funny thing about that is, is someone pointed out to Kelly and Kelly went public with it. So Kelly, that he happened? wanted to get out in front of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Kelly didn't figure it out, but a just dedicated surf fan who obviously was crunching numbers for who knows what reason and, <laughs> and told Kelly and Kelly was like, hey, 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 I didn't win. I didn't win. And um, I, it, that's such a, such a funny moment in surfing history. So for anyone who doesn't remember this, Kelly had a really, really strong lead for the title this year. There was a Rip Curl Search event in San Francisco. I think it was the third last or second last event that year. And it looked like Kelly was likely to sum up the title, but it wasn't a sure thing at that event. And he, they did the calculations and let everyone know that if he made it through this next heat, maybe round three or something, that he would be the winner. That happened. They celebrated Kelly's win on the beach. And then sure enough, that, that whole fiasco happened. They crunched the numbers Kelly came out with it and told everyone that he hadn't actually won yet. They had to pull it back. <laughs> they had to fire their mathematician. 
And then Kelly went out and um, she eventually won the title the next heat. And um, I think did they did did the ASPCO quit over that? Yeah, Brody Carr. He left shortly thereafter. Yeah, he resigned over that maths error, which couldn't have been his. He wasn't the one with the spreadsheets, but yeah, he took the fall. Brody Carr took the fall for for that fuck up, which never would have happened in Tom Moray's. Oh, actually, no, it's exactly what would have happened in Tom Moray's stopwatch comp. I got a new take on this one. I've never thought about this before, but I think Kelly just wanted two celebrations. <laughs> yeah, I mean the the person who figured that out, the person who just decided that they needed to crunch the ASP numbers that that was just the, what they needed to do at that point in time if you are this person if somehow you think you might know this person please please reach out to us because that is just an incredible story another time this has happened to Kelly and he was the one who crunched the numbers was the time that he won the Eddie I cow they decided that that heat was a draw and Kelly went and looked at the scores and was like, hang on a minute, they've, they've added up the maths here incorrectly and I actually won. And so he had, to, he had to fight for that win in ways that he'd never fought for a surf contest before mathematically. I think we should bring stopwatches back in some way, just not at the surf ranch. I think there's something that we should be able to do around timing things. They, they introduced like a, a swatch or I can't remember who sponsored it, but at the Quicksilver Pro one year, and they were measuring surface speed and they had it, I think it was the year the WSL took over and they had it as, as a graphic on screen. And I think there was even an award for the fastest surfer, but what they, what they quickly figured out, and I think the reason they scrapped it was, is that the worst surfers were the ones that were going the fastest because they weren't surfing uh, vertically, they were surfing horizontally. They were like racing down the line. And for the most part, the better surfers were actually surfing up and down the wave and not moving as fast. Wow. I, I remember that a little bit. I just remember them really hyping up the white lightning thing, you know? Oh, Mick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, hey, back to Tom Moray. You know, the uh, a really sad detail in his write-up on the Encyclopedia Surfing is Moray, however, sold his interest in Boogie in 1977 just before the bodyboard became hugely popular. That is just, that is heartbreaking. I feel like there's been like a just a generational change of, I mean, you got people like Tom Mori, Jack O'Neill comes to mind too. Just these people that would literally were just obsessed with trying to invent surf related things. And people just don't do that anymore. Now it's just like, oh, maybe I can get this thing like made for a little bit cheaper than somebody else in China. <laughs> like, is there anything left to invent? Bottle opener on the bottom of a sandal. That's yeah. Mick Fanning really is the Tom Moray of our era. <laughs> Waikiki surf lockers go up in flames for the second time in two years. This story is just a bummer. This happened over the weekend. It was just a Sunday afternoon, broad daylight, full tourist crowd in Waikiki, and the famous surfboard lockers there just went up in blaze. People can't really figure out any reason 
that it would have happened other than arson. Uh, damage has been estimated at $650,000. When you think about a place like Waikiki, the boards that would be in the lockers there, I don't even know how you put a number to it. I know a lot of that, that number factors in nearby buildings getting damaged and, you know, the lockers themselves, but there must've been some boards in there that you can't put a dollar amount on that are just from shapers that might not even be alive anymore. May have been in families for a while. It's, it's such a bummer. Um, I talked to a friend who was there. It sounded like it was just a wild scene. Like, you know, just imagine a, a crazy, busy, beautiful Sunday, and then all of a sudden there's a massive fire, just a plume of black smoke, yeah. chemicals everywhere. The video footage is incredible. It's the flames are huge, and it's that disgusting-looking, like, chemical fire where the smoke's black, and it's and, it, and it's right next to that high-rise um, resort, and it, it, it almost climbs the entire size of it. Yeah, yeah, it's wild. Um, I've talked to a few people about trying to figure out why stuff like this happens for a story on Stab Premium. It seems like a really complex thing. Um, usually if there's arson involved, there's, there's got to be a deep reason for somebody to light something on fire like that. And this is the second time, right? So like it has to be a, a motivated arson event. Like it, it's not just, it, it, like what is the motive here? Yeah, I, nobody I've talked to has any idea. It sounds like there's just some weird stuff happening. Um, we are fishing around a bit, but who knows if it'll even bear any fruit. The There's no way this is in any way a, an attempt to protect Waikiki, is it? it as a surf spot and, and the amount of people that are in, in the water there? I don't think it could be that, no. I mean... It can't be, can it? It's such a like peaceful place to surf, you know? It's yeah. like everybody's just out there happy, having fun. It's like the opposite of, of like an aggressive lineup, you know? It's just the weirdest crime to match with such a mellow wave that, that you know, I can't imagine someone committing such a huge crime to try and protect. Like it just, it just doesn't make sense. But just the fact that it's the second time that it's happened there, I just wonder, and, and, and the same thing, like burning the surfboards, is there, is there some sort of philosophy behind this crime, do you think? I, I don't know. It's so, it's like, maybe it's just the, a case of somebody just being mentally unwell and having nothing to do with a, a, you know, a vendetta or a cause. Maybe it's just somebody that is in a really bad place in life and just is trying to express that in some fucked up way because in other than that I, I really don't know what would motivate this like I don't think the boards that are in there just have a locker at Waikiki a surfboard locker at Waikiki you were a local you know so I don't know why anybody would target the locals there it might just like I said be the case of somebody that's just really unwell uh, but it's a bummer one thing I did hear though is that a little surf shop there used surfboards Hawaii has started a GoFundMe for people who have lost their boards and you know, I don't know what kind of insurance you have, but I don't, how would you try to get money back for a surfboard? Uh, they've started GoFundMe to try to get some people that have lost boards and boards back. They've also, they have a system that I think they sell some really nice older boards and they have, they just have offered anybody who's bought a board from them in the past 10 years or whatever it is 
you can hit them up and get like the receipt for it if you've lost it because again who would keep a surfboard receipt so one person i talked to there said that that as you often see when there's like something that's just tragic and just a real bummer for a community you do see these kind of acts of kindness in that community come up and so that was a point that they were emphasizing was that you know as fucked up as this is it is getting people to look after each other in their in little ways and you know it, it, there is this sense of community there being like okay that was that was horrible but like what can we do for each other to help make it better so good to hear but an ugly situation for sure if i was a, if i was a police officer though i'd be arresting the guy who was the only one out the next day <laughs> surfing Waikiki by himself I'd be like that's definitely the guy hey. and he, you know let's be honest it was most likely a guy that's a coffin yep alright some surf films you should watch this week Stab Highway episode 3 and Tori Meister's Grit and Water I'm just gonna launch immediately into a rant here I feel like for a while people would complain about oh surfing there's no more characters anymore like everybody's the same and just no shut the fuck up Look at Stab Highway. Look at Tori Meister. Tori Meister is riding a bull to... He did a 20-minute surf movie <laughs> with all cowboy music. And then you got Stab Highway on the other side of the spectrum. Then go look at Italo Ferrer's Instagram. He looks like he could be attending like a funeral sometimes. Sometimes it looks like he's going to like a BDSM thing. It's like we have a lot of character. We have a lot of things. Just because nobody doesn't... The whole crew doesn't party till 5 a.m. anymore. doesn't mean you can say everybody's the same and we have no character. So, yeah, it's certainly not a monoculture, is it? When you describe it like that, it's no, it's bullshit. Of- oh, everybody's the same. It's nobody's different anymore. No, it's just it's just so flagrantly flagrantly untrue. Um, yeah, and, and you know, even within Stab Highway itself, we had some of the really loose Australian free surfers, but then there was also these oddballs. You know, like we had um, Mackenzie Bowden. You might have seen his a video series that. He did on Stab recently where he was um, doing these caricatures of, of the different archetypes of surfer. And like keep the bloody cameras out of the, out of the beaches because it's just getting too fucking crowded these days, mate, you know? Fucking hell, look at these fucking cameras. Hey boys, how you going? Hi, how are you? Yeah, good, how you doing? Good. You're not filming, are you? No. Where are you from? Brazil. Oh yeah? Yeah. I'm from here. So he's in, and he's like this internet humorous guy, obviously rips, but, and then, you know, we had CT surfers like Macy Callanan, Callahan, I meant to say, guys like Reef Hazelwood, who doesn't drink, is the most polite, uh, clean living and, and obviously incredible surfer as well. But, and, and then there's, you know, a bunch of other personalities all packed into vans together and, and all the girls are there mixed in with the boys and, and that doesn't, you know, that, that doesn't happen that often in surfing anymore. So just with, even within that, and then when you bring in, comparing it to like Italo and Tori Meister, yeah, there's, there's definitely some diversity out there. Well said. Yeah, yeah, I'm just, I'm just done with that argument. I mean, Tori's especially, like I, I'd imagine a lot of people aren't going to be into the soundtrack, but I just, yeah, I'm not going to be asking Siri what any of those songs are. Tell my kid to pick up but the fact that he committed to that and he just said you know what i don't give a fuck this is what i listen to this is who i am i'm doing this i love i i don't think you can't how could you not respect that um and then yeah he just he wrote a bull yeah 
it's completely psycho. But so is the rest of the film where he's like packing these crazy, crazy giant mountains and and navigating these slabs and and, and everything else he does. It's the whole thing is. And so the yeah the surfing there is incredible. One thing that I noted too was that in the credits he lists. 44 people's names for those who filmed it and no way that just goes to show the effort that went into this and just how how much work it is and how much like 44 i've never seen that before it's a whole frame of like four columns of names pretty much every surf filmer i've ever heard of if you want to hire a surf filmer go watch the film get to the credits (laughs) screenshot that and then you'll have 44 people to hit up because that i'm pretty sure that's every surf filmer in the world so tori meister essentially not only made a self surf film but he invented linkedin for surf photography (laughs) or surf films he did yeah yeah very that's great tom mori like in that regard we've got a surf scene coming but first should we hear from a friend of the program kelly slater yeah, so there's a bit, bit of speculation at the moment that Kelly would be re- releasing a new video game and I think a few people got a little bit excited about this so we tracked down Kelly to see what he had to say and this was Kelly's response. I haven't even started working but I got an offer of a technology, a, a new technology that has never existed before. <clears throat> um, that's quite interesting but I, I can't even speak on it yet because I haven't talked to people who created it but um, my friend who's a skater who helped create it with this group um, linked me up with them and they want to talk about doing a game so that's really about it but it's it's I have not had the conversation yet so I don't know their level of interest my friend wants us to work together so I think we're probably getting a little too excited given that Kelly hasn't actually made contact with the people that have invented the tech. But, I mean, and we don't even know what this tech is. It's all a bit ambiguous at the moment. But what do you think, Buck? Are you excited about another potential Kelly Slater entering the world of computer, re-entering the world of computer games? I am thrilled. I am thrilled. No, I don't care. I don't care about video games at all. (laughs) (laughs) But one thing I wanted to add was that... When I was at Quicksilver, the guy who brought that airlift vest to the market, like that idea had been around for a bit. You know, Patagonia had a version, Billabong was playing with it. For us to be able to tap into everything they've learned over the years and apply it to a product that will push us into the future of big wave riding has been amazing. The inflation device, uh, we'll call it the, the air cell in this, that brings people to the surface, is something Aqualung's been doing for more than 50 years. Quicksilver brought a wealth of surfing and ocean knowledge to the project. Uh, But the guy who brought it to life for us, which obviously it's a really complicated project to bring that to life, and like we sold it, they sold it just to to anybody, you know, that it was available in stores and online, whereas some of the other ones you had to sign special waivers. You enter a different territory when you don't do that, especially with such a thing that has a specific function that you're meant to do. But he had a few other projects on at the time. He was our head of innovation. He was Quicksilver's head of innovation. And he had this project going where it was like body map sensor things where 
it's like a wetsuit that had all these different points that like you could kind of it would take data when you were surfing and then you'd get like a computer generated model of like what your kind of body and muscles are doing and like when you strip it back away from actually seeing a person and seeing like you really get to see how their bodies are moving and you probably learn a ton uh hmm i don't i'm almost suspicious because i know there was a version done in skating i'm almost suspicious that kelly is playing around in some similar waters right now but it sounds like you know the, the hard part will be taking that information making it into a video game but interesting it, it made me think of that and i was like oh huh, i wonder if there's something going on here kelly obviously had a uh, huge history with Quicksilver, so I'm wondering, how do these people? Is this the mm. old friend? Is this like, am I connecting some dots here? Am I being a little bit Conan Hayes? I don't know. <laughs> we'll see. Let's see. I don't know. How do you feel about video games? No, I don't play them. Yeah, I think sometimes I think I'm driving, like just driving in real life, sort of like a video game. You know? Mm. Are you pretty good? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Throw it. Just sort of like treat it like Mario Kart. Throw a banana out behind. <laughs> Um, throw a yellow I mean sorry throw a red turtle at someone <laughs> wait actually one point are there any VR surf games there has to be right I'm sure there are I've never seen or heard one I mean VR is this seems like it's the new frontier that never actually shows up or is actually going to make a difference it's not something that particularly excites me but I think if if someone could get some really high quality footage and shot you know a a million frames a second like some of the slow-mo cameras do nowadays and you could have a VR experience in that where you could actually look around in the barrel and experience it that way. I know that's not a computer game. You can't really win or lose, but I'll, I'll be down with that. I, w- I hope someone does that at some point. Yeah, I also think if you got it really right, I think what it could do, especially in like bigger waves, as like a training tool, <clears throat> like I know in a bunch of other sports, especially like American football, they use a lot of VR just to get somebody more comfortable with the situation of people like charging at them. And you know, you just, if, if your brain just sees this again and again and again, what happens in real life, you're gonna be a bit more calm, you're gonna be used to it. You're gonna have the biggest swell of a year at a certain spot regardless, but if you could just like replicate that again and again and again and- Yeah, well they use it in the military to desensitize soldiers. They, they give them those shooting games and they get them used to just hosing down aliens and whatever else are in those games and then they go out to you know they go to afghanistan and iraq or wherever where they're going to face combat and their their brains been through that process and compartmentalizes it a little bit differently i guess because they've had the video game experience i mean i'd like to think they're going up and shooting some aliens too though right there's probably some shit we don't know about <laughs> all right one more before surf's in we have got a message from the swellian himself jed smith of ain't that swell Jed wrote a wonderful story for us this week about whether or not surfboards are made to fail. You can check it out on Stab Premium. But first, let's hear from Jed. G'day, it's uh, Jed Smith here, the Stab journalist and host of the award-winning Degenerate Surf podcast, Ain't That Swell. I'm here to talk about 
planned obsolescence in the surfboard shaping industry. I wrote an article this week for Stab Magazine uh, titled A Surfboard's Made to Fail, where we got a few industry insiders to open up on whether or not boards are intentionally fragile and built to break, therefore driving repeat purchases. Um, Now, it's a big topic, uh, a big and very dense topic with some pretty big questions at the forefront of it. Uh, In a perfect world, I would have had some kind of whistleblower to draw on, um, you know, someone with evidence that, you know, boards were being deliberately made to break to drive repeat purchases, uh, but I didn't have that. So uh, I went to Alex Cruz instead, the uh, man behind Axod Shapes up there on the Gold Coast, one of the top labels, top emerging labels in that high-performance surfing heartland. And the reason I went to Alex for information is because I know him well, um, He's an independent shaper. Uh, he's got no vested interests working for any major labels, so I could kind of trust what he was going to tell me. Um, but he's also worked for a bunch of major shaping labels in the past. And, um, you know, the questions I put to him, and there was a couple of others mentioned in the story actually, um, but the, it, it was stuff along the lines of, you know, um, you know, what is the desirable and responsible balance between durability and performance in a in a modern surfboard, a modern thruster? Who decides this? What forces drive that decision? And do we, the consumer, have any say in it? Now, uh, I mean, it's a, a complicated question. Um, they're, they're all complicated questions, really. My, I had a bit of a paranoid theory that planned obsolescence had crept into surfing because it's fucking in everything else you can think of, from light bulbs to cars and countless electrical appliances. Uh, it's, a, it's a horrendous idea. It's one of the worst things we've come up with as a species, um, and it's basically the, the crowning glory of capitalism and consumerism. Um, it's what underpins the, the Western economies, basically. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, it's it's, a, it's just a b- b- terrible thing for a planet that has finite resources. You can't continually make things to break uh, just to dr- drive repeat purchases. Sure, it you know, keeps everyone's bottom lines looking plump, but uh, you know, we don't live on a planet with infinite resources, so at some point, things have got to be made to last. Um, High-performance surfboards, however... I guess they're in a slightly different category because we're trying to – it's a sporting equipment that we want to get the best out of and we want to be doing our best surfing on them. And uh, what I learned was that there's an industry standard uh, when it comes to, to putting surfboards together and that is two layers of four ounce on the deck and one on the bottom. Uh, and everyone in the Australian surfing industry and the American uh, shaping and surfing industry subscribes to that as far as I know. Um, the question then is, you know, is that a responsible, uh, level of durability? Like, is that too far on the scale of performance, um, and not enough on the scale of durability? Are we creating far too much waste and landfill? You know, if you look at the surfboards written in the sixties, seventies, eighties, uh, into the, the mid nineties, you know, these boards they would last for, you know, the ones, the early kind of single twin fin prototypes would last for decades. Like we're talking 50 years. 
Um, whereas the modern kind of performance surfboard lasts for, you know, you're lucky to get six months out of it. So, you know, if you were to look at surfboards on a continuum of durability, like the modern performance thruster, it wouldn't even make it on there. Um, and if you were to, you know, similarly, if you were to look at boards on a continuum of performance, the, you know, the retro original single fin and twin fin prototypes wouldn't even make it on there. Uh, the surfing being done today by the top guys is, is basically a different sport. So, uh, yeah, it's this balancing act. Um, and the question is whether the industry's got it right. Um, and, you know, that was a question I, I, I put to these guys. Uh, I don't want to spoil the article. You should, should probably cough up the money and, and dip in yourself. But, I mean... At the end of the day, at, if you want to skirt uh, the problem of planned obsolescence in shaping, if such a thing does exist, which we couldn't prove that it did, but if you want to get around you know, creating too much landfill and all that stuff, just call your shaper up, go direct, uh, cut out the middleman in the, the, in the form of the retailer and, and get a custom board designed to your specs, glassed heavier. You pay a bit more money, but you know, you, you, you're likely to get twice as much play out of it. Um, there were some great comments actually in the comment section, I thought, um, just kind of pointing to the fact that uh, this is an especially problematic when you get up to the top rungs of professional surfing and you've got guys you know, getting 100 to 150 boards a, a season, um, all of which are just completely glass to the lightest possible standard. We're talking like, I, I mentioned in one of the comments I wrote back, uh, picking up one of Jack Freestone's boards um, that a mate of mine had and pre- going, whoa, you know, this thing's light and pressing it with my fingers and actually cracking the glass with uh, my thumbs. Just the pressure of my grip was enough to to crack the, uh, crack the seal. Um, and so... You know, even if those boards, even if that 100 or 150 boards that the pro surfers getting, uh, even if a lot of them make it onto the public, uh, they're not lasting for any longer than three to six months. To, you know, so that's a fucking lot of landfill. And I don't know if that really gels with uh, surfing's core values at all. Um, and it's, it, you know, it's, it can be a bit hypocritical when you see the WSL championing, you know, protecting coral reefs, saving reefs and various other environmental initiatives when, you know, their their tour elite are, are all commanding 100 to 150 boards a year. Um, I mean, far out. That is a lot of surfboards when you do the math and consider how many people are on tour, uh, both the, the, top, the top tier and then the Challenger Series. Holy shit, man. It's not something you want to think about. It makes a... Uh, yeah, it makes a, a Zimbabwean trash site look like a bloody dream. Far out. Far out. Far out. Far out. Far out. Far out. So what do you make of this story, Buck? I think it's really interesting because in that surfboard deep dive we did the other week that Jeremy Blake wrote, weight is obviously such a big factor in how a board's going to feel under your feet. That's why epoxies are getting more and more popular, especially in smaller waves. Like you just, they go faster. You feel it so much more alive on your feet. A lot of that has to do with the weight. And so heavier glass job is definitely going to make a board just slower. And maybe it's just, maybe it's just, you know, me, but I'm okay with slower surfing sometimes. 
like there's certain waves where you can go slower i think and so it made me think like okay like i should be more conscious of glass jobs and i should maybe get a board or two that i know i want to have for 10 years and just think about boards more like that it was just it was a point that i hadn't considered in so long and this brought it back to the front of mind for me and just being like yeah like that'd be cool to just have like a board that you could surf and some like just chunk your waves not even barrels that you know you're going to potentially break it but just like a, a, a board that you're just going to have this weighty thing that you can just surf in certain waves and I like the idea of having a board for like 10-20 years so I'm going to I'm gonna go ahead and order myself a thicker board a thicker glass board yeah that's a really interesting point in the article that it it correlates surfing performance with boards that don't last and and high performance boards are more refined thinner and made from lightweight material so yeah, it's a tricky one for us all to get our head around. In terms of like, I mean, the, the subhead from the story is industry insiders open up about whether or not boards are intentionally fragile, thus driving repeat pur purchases. And I think any shaper that was out there, if they were making boards that were intentionally weaker or they weren't optimizing their strength and the idea that people would buy more boards from them, it would be uh, a really, really bad businessman or woman because... That just clearly wouldn't work in this industry. Obviously, it works for Apple when you're so platform specific and and you you it's a lot of effort to jump over and change to a to a different provider. So Apple and they've been busted for it twice now for planned obsolescence. It, it makes sense for them to do it, and they're clearly going to move more iPhones when they when they put out updates that slow the phones down, which they've been proven to do. So yeah, but if there was a if there was a shaper doing that, I just think people would switch to a new brand. It would be such a uh, such a silly and a business move. I, don't, I can't imagine there's ever been a, a shaper that's attempted to pull the wool over anyone's eyes and and make make weak surfboards on purpose. Yeah, Alex Cruz makes that point in the story. He says like if it, as a shaper, if you did that, you just immediately get a bad rap. Like people would catch on, even if they don't think you're doing it on purpose. They'd just be like, oh, this guy's boards always break. Like I'm not gonna get one of those. Mm. I guess there's whispers of somebody doing it back in the day, just kind of sanding them a bit more than what was deemed to be necessary. But those are just rumors. It'd be a sin. It'd be a sin if you did that. It would be a sin. It would be a sin. It would certainly be. It would be a major sin. It would be an earth sin and a surf sin. It would be both, which is dangerous territory. Let us get into this week's surf sin, by the way. So... We've got one from the United Kingdom, uh, charming accent. I love that, and really a charming man. He, uh, he presents an interesting case here. Yeah, let's hear it. Hey, Danny Buck. So here's a surf scene all the way from the UK. Uh, there was a little swell at the weekend down at a local reef break, so went down, and by the time we got there, it was pretty slack and it was pretty mellow, so I was on the shortboard, and my mate Eric, who I was surfing with, was on his longboard, and he offered me towards the end of the session, because I had a pretty frustrating session, to take a few on his board because he'd been catching loads. So I did. And um, first wave, I took off and snagged the fin on a rock that I didn't see, smashing the fin out of the fin box, destroying the fin box and the back of the board, which I felt pretty awful about. But that's not the surf sin. The surf sin is that the board didn't actually belong to Eric. It belonged to his girlfriend, Mel. And she is oblivious to the fact that he borrowed it and that I borrowed it and broke it, and now that I've borrowed it, broke it, and had it fixed. And the problem is, we've had it fixed, and it's not the same colour. It's got a different colour fin box on. And yeah, just feeling pretty terrible. It's eating me up, this whole scenario that 
this web of lies that's just getting deeper and deeper. So she's going to get her board back fixed, but it will be a different colour at the bottom end. And just generally feeling pretty terrible about the whole thing. So, yeah, reap me the penance. So we had some shades of Teddy here with the barred bar longboard. Yep. And with this changing the aesthetic of the surfboard. But it's a complicated one because he did... The damage that was done, he got repaired. And he seems like a really thoughtful, caring person. And so I'm going to assume he went to a good surfboard repair shop and got it done right on. I think he just did a backyard. Like, oh, here, I put some solar res on it. Like, good luck. Mm. So I'm going to assume that he got it done right. And so where that puts us is, you know, if he got it done really good, it's not going to affect the board's performance in any way. We're surely talking aesthetic. And I think for a penance, again, because, you know, it's about aesthetic and look good, feel good, play good, right? I think as a penance, he needs to put himself kind of in the same place as the, the girl who's longboard he borrowed who now has to deal with this unideal aesthetic. And I think he needs to just surf in goggles for two weeks. <laughs> That would probably be better. Surfing in goggles would be amazing. Can you imagine how good duck diving would look? Well, what if what if he does? What if he comes out with surf goggles? And he's the next Tom Mori. What That's if he did invent true. something? Yeah, that would be your invention. I like that. Yeah, this one was interesting though because, like you said, he, he clearly thoughtful guy got the board fixed. But what makes this surf sin dynamic interesting is it's 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 multi layered. Mm. This guy's wife committed a surf sin by borrowing a board without asking permission and then he's gone and then broken this guy's board and gotten him in trouble he would have gotten away with it so it's sort of like it's these it's almost like a the movie inception there's a, a surf scene within a surf scene i think that's where i think that's where it gets interesting it does it gets it, it's a complicated one i'm sticking with the goggle thing and now that i think about it is like let's not rule out the potential for invention uh it could be a win-win it could just be a healing journey but my penance is goggles every surf for two weeks. If you don't find yourself in the water often, I'm going to say 10 surfs. You know, if you're kind of like a once a week type. Uh, consecutive. You can't, you can't uh, pick and choose. Be the goggle man inexplicably in the lineup and uh, you will feel better after. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, well, I, I'm just glad this surf scene didn't take a crazy twist like last week's did where a seal turned into a Russian. I thought I didn't, I was hoping, I'm glad that didn't happen and this guy didn't end up having sex with this guy's wife, his friend's wife or, or something by the end. But I think I've been thinking about it for a little bit and I, my penance was that I think he, he has to go then and fix a stranger's board, which is harder to do than you think because first of all, you got to find someone with a, a stranger with a broken board and then convince them to give it to you and fix it. And yeah, that's my penance. So take your pick, surf, a goggle, surf with goggles, fix a stranger's board. It's up to you. We're just the, we're just the high priests around here. We don't, we don't tell you exactly which one you have to do. At the end of the day, it's, it's on you to put this, to bring this penance to life. You know, that we're, we're doing all we can. Yeah. 
And that's all we have for this week. Please send in your surf sins to myself or Buck. Our emails are in the episode description, danny at stabmag.com or buck at stabmag.com. And we'll see you next week. Next week.